And so, Lord, you bring us into one house, one room, one roof over us, so that we may learn from you, from your word, we may lift our voices up together and be unified. And now, Lord, may we settle in to your Bible, and may it speak to us, Lord, and get me out of the way, and may the Spirit move in this room. And we all said, Amen. Have a seat, everyone. We have some work to do this morning. We're going to dig into some teaching. And we have four weeks left before the Christmas season comes upon us, what we call Advent. And um, I'd like to take that time, three out of those four, to talk about money and possessions and contentment and what it means to be uh, live a life of peace. And uh, of course, next week is All Saints Day, and so we're going to stop that stuff on money and possessions and just take a moment to reflect on all of the Christians who have gone before us. We celebrate that next Sunday. Of course, you understand uh, that Halloween is the all-hallowed ones eve, the eve of the hallowed ones, the eve of the saints. The real holiday is November 1st, right? That's the real holiday. Halloween actually is just like New Year's Eve to New Year's Day or Christmas Eve to Christmas Day. It's just the run-up holiday. And so, take this for what it's worth. You don't have to own this by any means, so this is just my two cents. I, personally, on, before the sun comes up on November 1st, All Saints Day, I race around the house and strike every Halloween uh, decoration. I throw the pumpkins in the garden, you know, jack-o'-lanterns and all that stuff. I strike the whole deal. And I go out on my front porch, I don't have much uh, other than this to do, and I take a big, long, white satin ribbon, about 10 foot long, and I staple it above my door. And I say, you know what? The demons don't win. The saints continue to stand next to the throne of God and praise Him all day long. And it's just our remembrance to say, like, who wins in the end? Well, not evil. God. People like you and me praising God. That's who wins in the end. So... Do with it what you want. Maybe you find your little thing to do, but yeah, I just can't handle the whole Halloween decorations left over on All Saints Day. Just something bugs me about it. Like, yeah, yeah I got a little weirdness going on there. I'm sorry, but it is the way it is. So you can tell me to get over it, and I'm just having a hard time with it. So, all right, well, let's move into uh, this series is called The Good Life because philosophers, for actually thousands of years, when philosophers talk about like, what's the end game? They say the good life. Aristotle began it. He says, what's the end game? We are all after the good life. And I don't think it takes very much of a big leap to say, when you want to think about what is the good life, we think about money. Money is the path to the good life, right? I mean, it's been that way since time began. Money will give me the good life. We all agree with that. I'm not saying anything real phenomenal there. So I think it would be appropriate of being people of the Bible that we would look at several Bible personalities on how they crashed into money and possessions and trying to seek what is the good life. And so um, I'm going to give you several Bible personalities. And I got this big old gauge here that's red, yellow, and green with this dial on it. And over here on the red side, which is the bad side, by the way, is greed, greedy, and being short-sighted. So we're going to look at these Bible personalities, and if they're over here, I'm going to move this over here. Now, if they're a good model for how to handle money and possessions and seek the good life, I'm going to move this over here to content and eternal. 
They have an eternal perspective, and they understand what contentment is, all right? So we'll just use this little illustration. You also have some study notes, this little handout, and near the end you can fill some blanks in, but it has all the scriptures and everything on here, so you don't have to sit here and ponder like, what scripture did you say? Matthew, hoo-ha? So, I mean, who what Sorry. Um, I knew you guys were going to do that too, man. So old school. Is that, it's not in the podcast, is it? Um, all right. Yeah, moving on. Um, so, uh, yeah, big gauge. So here's what we got. Here's our very first personality. Our first personality is found at the very beginning of the Bible with Adam. Adam's our first personality. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, it's on the piece of paper there, says this. Now, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. That was Adam's job, to take care of the garden. He gets to name all the animals, which sounds like kind of a fun thing. If you had a morning at the zoo, you could go around and say, like, I'm going to call that a, you know, giraffe or something like that. Well, that sounds fun until you think, like, I get, what is an animal? It includes every spider and ant and mite and all the rest of everything out there. You're like, oh, that's a big job. But it's also a privilege. That's his job is to name all the animals. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, parents get a small taste of this when they have to name their kids, right? And it's a huge job. I mean, you spend a whole lot of time and get on the Internet and all this sort of thing trying to find out how to name your kid. It takes a lot of work. Some say, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to reach back into our family. We're going to pull a name from way back when. And so, you know, you see these names like Emma these days and Abigail. And what, when I grew up, those were the old-fashioned names, right? Now, you know, I realize we're going to go to the uh, nursing home someday, and the people there with me are all going to be called Christy, you know, which just doesn't sound like an old folks name, but that's the way it's going to be. So, you know, and the person taking care of them is going to be named Abigail. So, you know, uh, or something like that. Now, other people reach back into the Bible, and that's what happened to me. My name's Dan or Daniel, actually. It's a Bible name. I was the last of five kids, so they're kind of at this point just sort of doing the drop the Bible open, pick a name, that'll do. You know, my brother's name's Timothy, and I got John and all those guys. And it's, but my mom thought, well, that'll do because you know, it means courage in the face of danger. So Daniel will be a good name for you. So some people just look through the Bible for that. Other parents, they're starting to get desperate. So they just get on the website, Missouri Department of Conservation, and they start picking out names like Hunter and uh, Parker and, you know, even maybe Ranger or Forrest or Snybar or something. They just get on there. They don't know what to do. And others then go after U.S. president's names. You're going to be Carter. You're going to be Reagan. You're going to be Garfield. You're going to be Van Brunt. So something like that, you know, and they just come up with names. And then other ones just watch way too much Weather Channel, and they start naming their kids Autumn and Summer and June and Star, you know, and all that sort of thing. Other parents just get really confused, and they take their innocent little Chinese adopted daughter, and they name her Mia, but they don't spell it like the Italian spelling. Instead, they spell it like Leah which is somewhere between Star Wars and the Bible, which is really used, though, only in Ireland, but it originally came from the Bible. And their kid says, I don't know how my name came up, man. I'm just glad I wasn't Luke Skywalker. So, uh, but people put a lot of effort into naming their kids. So can you imagine Adam's responsibility of doing this sort of thing and the thought that went into that? So speaking of parents, let me ask this question. Parents, do you own your children? 
Do you own your children? Do you own them? Guardian? Yes. Pay the insurance? Yes. But do you own them? No. Adam didn't own the animals and he didn't own the garden. You see, what Adam, what he understood about possessions is that he was a trustee. He was a steward, not an owner. And you and I do not own our children and we do not own anything on this earth. You have a file folder at home, a file cabinet that says you own stuff, but it's not true. Everything you and I have in this garden is on loan from God Almighty, including your children. The house that you say you own is on loan from God. Your paycheck, your talents, your next breath, your next heartbeat is on loan from God. Content has an eternal perspective that says, just like Adam, I just get to name things. I don't own anything. Adam's got this down. He understands what it means to have a godly perspective on what it means to own things and have possessions in this world. He's in the green zone. He's not greedy. He's not short-sighted. He's content and eternal. So I have to ask you this. What you really kind of do on your little piece of paper is think like, did I think that before you just said that? And do I agree with that guy? You don't have to agree with me. But check in with yourself. Where would you be on this? Do you consider yourself a steward, a trustee of everything that you have? Think about it. Do you own your children? Where are you? Move this back to the middle. Uh Uh-oh. Didn't need that anyway. All right, next uh, profile, biblical personality profile. Let's jump forward all the way from Genesis to the New Testament and into the Gospels, and we find Jesus telling a parable, a story. It's an illustration. It's not historical. It's an illustration that he's telling. And Jesus begins this. It's out of uh, Luke chapter 16. Jesus begins, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Jesus goes on with this story, and he says that both men die, and both men go to the afterlife, Jesus says. The beggar Lazarus, he goes to heaven, I mean to heaven, right? But the nameless rich man, he goes to hell, all right? Now, here's the interesting twist on the story from Jesus' telling here. The rich man can see somehow Lazarus in all of his comfort in heaven. The rich man is in hell, but he can see Lazarus. And, and the, Lazarus is with all the patriarchs, or at least one named Abraham from the Old Testament. You know, he's gone on to be with the, the fathers and so forth. And the rich man then cries out to Abraham with Lazarus there with him and says, you know, basically, Father, Abraham, 
have pity on me. Just touch your finger in the water and drop the one drop on my tongue to help me in my agony. The rich man's just fantasizing about a single drop of water on his tongue. That's consuming him. And Abraham answers the former rich man saying, Son, you remember in your lifetime, you received many good things. While Lazarus here, he received bad things. But now he's in comfort and you're in agony. Besides, there's this great chasm between us, this huge, cat, this huge chasm. And even if I wanted to, I couldn't come over there and put a drop of water on your tongue to ease your anguish. Well, now the rich man gets his perspective on, right? In his torment. And he says, well, then why don't you at least just, just send a, a messenger back to my brothers because they're taking the same path I took. They're just... They're living the high life right now. Go back and warn them. And Abraham says, you know what? They've got the prophets and the law, the Torah, in the Old Testament, as we call it. They have that. They should know better. They've been raised Jewish men their whole life. They've read this their whole life. They know what's right and wrong. If they can't trust the prophets and the law, what's a messenger going to convince them of? Now, Jesus ends the story there. And I think we're all supposed to understand what the point is. So think about this. What did the rich man do to Lazarus? What did the rich man do to Lazarus? What was his sin against him? Did he kick him? Did he punch him? Did he call him names? You despicable beggar. You with your hand out. You and your cardboard sign. Did he say or think anything about it? No. No, not at all. The rich man's sin against Lazarus was what? He just ignored him. He did nothing about the beggar at his gate. Did nothing. That was his sin. Apparently, doing nothing about the poor is a terrible thing. We're going to have to put the rich man over in the red zone, over in the greedy and short-sighted. He obviously short-sighted because he didn't think about the fact of where he was going to be, not just in 30 years, but in 30,000 years. And his greed wasn't a conscious greed. It was just a ignorant greed. Here we find what's been called the doctrine of reversal. The doctrine of reversal says this, according to Jesus. Those that are in a uh, one condition in this life may very well be in the opposite condition in the afterlife. Those who have it good now may have it bad later, and those who have it bad now may have it good later. We find it all throughout Jesus' teaching. Sometimes sin, everyone, is not a willful, egregious atrocity such as murder, or even stealing, or lying, or any of the other Ten Commandments. Sometimes 
Sometimes sin is simply doing nothing. That's what it looks like here. You can check me on it if you want. You see, the problem is with the rich man is that not only did it ignore him, he was thinking only in terms of his extra in life. The crumbs from his table, as Jesus says. Just the extra. What never put a pinch on him. What never hurt. What never took anything away from him. Only what he didn't have to think about and what was extra. And Jesus thinks that was not enough. Not by a long shot. So where are we on this scale? Where are you at? How do you think about this sort of thing? If I say it is sin to ignore the poor, what do you think of that? Where are you at in your life on this? When I was in China, the very first time, back in 2001, getting my daughter. I mean, it's an amazing country. I'm in a city called Chengdu. There's 13 million people there. I'd never heard of the city. It, I felt like I was in a National Geographic episode the whole time. As amazing as China was, the most amazing thing to me were all of the beggars. Now, I had never seen beggars like this, the, and I still haven't even to this day, and I've been to a lot of different third world countries. There, were, there was humanity looking like a wad of flesh that someone had wadded up in their hand and thrown it on the ground, oftentimes where you can't tell which part of the body it is. I thought about even showing you pictures this morning, but I thought it'd be actually a sin against them. (laughs) But more amazing, in a country of 13, uh, 1.3 billion people, who are all struggling to get by, were the thousands and thousands of busy people walking by doing nothing about these crumpled up pieces of humanity. Me included, as I raced around with my whatever Chinese money I had throwing it in everybody's cup. Trying to assuage my own guilt. Jesus' teaching, I think, is pretty clear. If you ignore the poor, you pay a price. Ignorance is sin. Or ignoring is sin, sorry. Next profile. Let's move this back to the middle. Wow, must be humid in here or something. My chart's falling apart. Um, Jump ahead then in the New Testament to the book of Acts. It's on your piece of paper there. Barnabas and Annas and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple, and Barnabas. And here's what we find with them. It, this isn't a parable. This isn't an illustration. This is a, a, a historical fact, okay, out of the New, New Testament. The very first church, this is what's going on. Let's get a picture of how the very first Christians were living out what they believed Jesus had taught. They took it very literally, and here's exactly what they were doing. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. All of the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the cell and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed as anyone as had need, as he had need. 
Now, the description goes on. It says this. There was a man named Barnabas, and he sold a field. He owned a, a tract of land, and he sold it, and he put it at the apostles' feet, which is the metaphor for, I'm giving it to the church, okay, to, to distribute. So Barnabas sounds like this very generous person. He's a sacrificial giver. It does not say he liquidated all of his assets, you know, or anything like that, but he did sell what appears to be a fairly significant uh, piece of property and gave that. Pretty sacrificial, I would think. It would be to me. All right? Now, so that's what Barnabas did. Now, there's also a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, this couple. And they also sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas, And with his wife's full knowledge, it says there in chapter 5, he kept back a part of the money for himself and his wife and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. You're like, okay, what's wrong with that? You know, sold the property, kept some of the money, gave some to the church. Cool. The problem is, is that they said they gave the full amount to the church. They lied. Okay? This is what's going on. So when Ananias comes to give the money to the apostle Peter, the spirit had already spoken to Peter, and Peter knows what's up, and he calls him out on it. He says, did you sell a piece of land and intend to give the full amount to the church and give the money away? And he says, Ananias says, yes, I did. He says, is this the full amount? And he says, yes, it is. Oh, and at that very moment, Ananias falls dead. Not faints not swoons, dead. I'm just going to kind of move that over to the red zone here. (laughs) All right? His wife doesn't know that he has dropped dead from lying to the church. She walks in a few hours later, and Peter says her, So, did you sell a piece of land? Yes, we did. Did you intend to give the full amount to the church? Yes, we did. Did you give the full amount? Yes, we did. Bam! She dies on the spot right there, and the young men carry her out. Just a little bit further down. (laughs) And this is is part of my, uh, well, this is where my sense of humor gets a little warped. But it says there in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church because of these events. You think? Great fear seized everybody in the church. Like, really, like that afternoon after church, you can see somebody, honey, you haven't been holding out on the church or anything. You didn't say you're going to give any full amount and not give it, did you? And if, don't tell me. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> if you have, don't tell me I don't want any part of this. Scary stuff, yeah? I mean, it's weird that Ananias and Sapphira felt like they needed to lie about the amount. I mean, think about it. They did a really cool thing. They sold the piece of property. So it kind of moves into the sort of the yellow zone. They sold a piece of property. And if they would have just said, hey, you know, we're keeping back half or a third or three quarters of it or whatever, you know, and giving the church this, everybody would have applauded. They would have thought they were wonderful people. What's going on that they felt like they had to lie? That's weird. It appears that it... It could be a form of greed, and we could have a discussion about it, I guess, afterwards or whatever. But it's almost like some sort of they needed the applause or they wanted to be greater than what they really were. They, it was some form of envy or, 
or self-aggrandizement, something strange. How weird that was that they would do that sort of thing. Okay? It's just sort of a thing, a weird sort of deal that they would want that. So what have we learned here? What have we learned? All right, so here's some things to fill in. What have we learned about these Bible personalities here? First, we learned this foundational lesson. None of us own anything. All of us are stewards and trustees about everything. We are stewards. We are all stewards of God's possession. Your job with your children is to give them back in better condition than how you got them. If we thought about everything in our house and everything in our life as being on loan from God, how much different would our disposition be? Would we not then be thinking in terms of much more of a contentment? Would not things uh, not possess us as much? Wouldn't we be more free if we were like Adam? Here, God, I used a little of your money. I, I fed the family. I put a roof over my head, you know. I, I bought a lawnmower. We went on vacation. We had a great time. Thanks, God. Everything's a gift from you. Oh, yeah, and we gave away money to the poor, and we didn't lie about it. Thanks, God, for the life you've given us. We're perfectly happy with what we have. It would always be fun to have more, but we'll be content because it wasn't ours in the first place. You're the giver, not me. That's what a trustee says. Second, we learned uh, from the rich man and Lazarus that giving God our leftovers is not generosity. Giving God the leftovers is not generosity. That is not even the beginning of generosity. It's not really even the beginning of being charitable. We have to begin to live strategically, everyone. Instead of living beyond our means, going into debt, or even doing the nice same thing that your investment counselor tells you is to live within your means, which I'm not even sure they actually say that. We must live strategically beneath our means. That's living strategically, beneath our means. There's where the real freedom is, everyone. I, I know for Lori and I, this has meant several things. What it has meant is that, one, we don't own a lake house or a lake property. That just was never in our deal. I work on the weekends anyway, so that'd just be something I have to go mow all the time. Some of you guys can pull this off, and it just never was in the cards for us. But when it did come up, we said, you know what? I think we can do without that, and we'll just go rent a cabin. So we did that. It also means that we decided to drive our cars longer. I thought we were actually being very awesome in doing this, and then I read the statistic that most people drive their cars for like 12 or 14 years, and I thought, oh, well, I guess we're just real average. Uh, but uh, So I come up with a new plan, trying to not be average. Uh, we're going to try and keep 100,000 miles between our two cars. We have two cars, and I'm going to try and keep 100,000 miles between them. I don't know if that's going to work or not. I'll, I'll let you know. But the theory is, is that, you know, that way we don't have to buy two cars at the same time and go in debt and all that sort of thing. Because our another big goal is, like, we're not going to try and buy a car again and go to the bank. It just kind of bugs me, you know. But when we were younger, and you guys who were younger, it was like, that's not even possible. But it's a good goal. It's a good thing to think about. To live strategically means you begin to arrange your life first, arranging things around God. 
so you can be free and content. As the Proverbs say, you know, the debtor is a slave to the lender. Amen? Yeah, amen. All right, well, that's kind of what it's meant for us. But, but I would say this, one added thing about us as our household. <laughs> I don't think we've ever missed a meal. And we've never gone cold or been too hot. Life has been good to us. Probably better than I think even most people. And yet, we've had this goal to give away at least a quarter, if not, my goal is a third of our income, which we've hit sometimes, and then uh, do somewhere between 25% and 33% of our household income. Gross. Give it away. And I'm totally fine. It's all good. Third thing we learn from Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira is that greed is death. Greed is death. We don't have to liquidate our homes, our cars, investments, but at times, God asks us to give strategically for some greater cause, some larger thing that's going on, some ministry, some cause out there, because greed is death. We die inside. We suddenly begin, we think we need the praise of other people, and and when we start um, getting greedy about stuff, it kills us. And the thing that kills us, everyone, is when we begin to compare ourselves to the Joneses next door. That's where the greed comes from. We suddenly, you know, think you need an iPhone 7. My iPhone 6 was fine, but now I need an iPhone 7. Why? I don't know. I saw a commercial. Like my daughter said to me when she's about four and a half years old when we were watching the Chiefs game, you know, and she said, Daddy, I like watching commercials because they tell me what I want. Well, pay no attention to that aluminum, you know, F-150 and the beer commercial. Anyway, you know. <laughs> they ain't that the truth. Commercials tell us what we want. You don't know what you want until somebody tells you that you're now lacking something. You were content a second ago, and now you're discontent. What is God telling us? Here's the good life, Everyone. Good life is found in the words of Jesus out of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus told his listeners, watch the birds. They don't worry. And yet God feeds them. Look at the flowers. They never spend a moment worrying about what to put on that day. And yet God dresses them more spectacular than King Solomon. Are they worried about what they'll wear? Are the birds worried about what they'll eat? Are you going to add even a moment, a second to your life by worrying about these things? When your good father takes care of you? I'll never forget, uh, more kid stories here, that when my little girl was about two years old and I was digging through the money dish in the kitchen looking for quarters to go to the car wash. Yes, in the old days, everyone used quarters to go to the car wash. And I was trying to get a stack of quarters and my little girl walked by and she said, I had quarters in my hand. She goes, what was that? Or what's that? Well, actually, she said, that. That's the only thing she could say. She said, Dad. And I said, it's money. Do you want some? And she said, no. And went off to play. And I thought, she doesn't need anything. Her mommy and her daddy give her green beans and, and hot dogs and anything she wants. She doesn't care about anything in this world. I thought, that's exactly the way you and I should be with God. 
green beans and cars. We have it all. The question becomes, what will we do about other people? What will we be content with? With a God who opens his hand and gives us everything we'd ever want. That's the question. That's what's going on here. You want the good life. It's right in front of you. You already possess it. I have yet to see anybody come back from Haiti going down there to serve who doesn't do this head-scratching moment where they say like, you know what? We went to church down in Haiti and those people down there were praising Jesus like crazy. Dancing, singing, waving, singing at the top of their lungs. What's wrong with me? I have, they live off $2 a day. I, I, I'm filthy rich compared to them. And I'm not happy like them. Now, do the Haitians want, you know, what you have? Sure, they're not stupid. But they've learned to just say, it's okay, I'll be content with what I have because what else can I do? See, contentment is already sitting in our lap. We choose it or we don't. That's the point. Well, if the servers want to come forward, we'll use this awesome illustration called the Lord's Table to prove to ourselves what we think is most important. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose a loaf of bread and a cup, food, things we eat, to say, this is my body, this is my blood, this is my covenant, this is my promise with you, this is our relationship. He could have given us like a little wooden cross or a stick or something like that as a symbol. But instead, it's food. It's something you eat, and it, then and it's gone. So you need to eat it again. Hopefully, if you get to, several times a day, you get to eat food. It's a metaphor of what it means to feed on God. Jesus is our bread. <laughs> Jesus is our bread. Feed on him every day. Throughout the day, we feed on God. Every day, we eat. We say, you know what? Everything I have comes from God. It's a metaphor to say, are you content or not? Feed me, Lord, like birds of the air, like lilies of the field. And then it leaks, and we have to come back next week and be fed and reminded again. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread, you remember my death, what I've done for you. And, and likewise, after supper, he took the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. See, every time we do this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're saying, God gave us Jesus. God the giver gives to us over and over and over and over. Would you stand with me, please, and let us pray together how Jesus taught us to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And I don't mean recite it, everyone. I do mean let it be a prayer. Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial 
Deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, everyone, we proclaim this mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come whenever you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the chalice. Consume it. Return to your seat in prayer. And we'll wrap things up. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Go in peace.